Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Summer is here and all I want to do is let my hair down and start making memories again and it wouldn't be the same without a delicious drink. Personally, over the past year, I've been trying to drink less alcohol as I know it can have a negative effect on my well-being. However, I haven't wanted to compromise on the experience or taste and that's when I discovered Atopia. Atopia is an ultra-low alcohol spirit, and I mean low, at just 0.5% ABV, it has the same alcohol content as a fresh pineapple. It's infused with a selection of aromatic botanicals and is best served with your favourite tonic and garnish. Oh, and by the way, it contains 75 times less alcohol than a gin and tonic, which means you can go out and still feel fresh the next morning. I can't wait to enjoy a summer without compromise with Atopia, so join in the fun and head over to Waitrose to get a bottle so you can start creating your summer drinks today. This podcast contains real conversations around miscarriage. Listener discretion is advised, so please only listen if it feels safe for you. Hi, welcome back to Open Mind. Today I'm so excited because I'm joined by Elizabeth Day, who is an award-winning author, broadcaster and podcaster with her amazing podcast, How to Fail. That's how we first met, isn't it, Elizabeth? It I came is. on your podcast. You were an amazing guest. And we were just saying, you were the last guest I did in person before lockdown hit. So you'll always have a special place in my heart. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I was so nervous because... Um, you know, just going into someone's home and I hadn't done many podcasts and you made me feel so comfortable and it just felt like a really nice conversation. And it's still something that people always comment about. People always reposting it on Instagram and telling me how much they love it. So um, thank you. That's so lovely to hear. And I actually just want to pay tribute to you because you walked into my home with such an open heart and we talked about such vulnerable but important things because, I mean, you always talk and write so brilliantly about mental health. But we went to some like really, you know, profound places. And I just mm. want to thank you for allowing me to go there. And also my cat Huxley had a crush on you. Do you remember? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. I, you know what? If I go into a home and the animal doesn't love me, by the time I leave, it really upsets yeah. me. I do it for everyone. So my friend's got a dog and he always wants to leave with me and it makes me so happy. <laughs> but if someone did it to mine, I'd be fuming. <laughs> I get it. You're like, I am loved. <laughs> yeah, I know. I need to be loved by animals. Humans, don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, so talking about how to fail, you get your guests on and you get them to talk about failures that they've experienced in their life in one way or another. And everyone kind of has a different version of failure, don't they? I feel like that's quite an unusual concept. Normally people want you to come on and talk about things you've achieved and your successes and how you've got there. And I suppose failures do often lead to that. But what was your reason for starting How to Fail? It's such a great question. And you're right. <laughs> it is a bit weird. And I think <laughs> because my background was in print journalism and I still do write for a Sunday newspaper, but... I'd often be sent to interview celebrities 
And the entire brief from the editor was like, talk to them about this fabulous thing that they're promoting. And the focus would very much be on their success. And I was always really interested when I went into those interviews in finding out who the person actually was. And so quite often the conversation would veer off topic and I'd ask lots of nosy questions about their family and their upbringing because that was the stuff that really interested me. And then when I came to write up the piece, if I ever included that, it would often end up just being cut out by the editor. Mm. And I got really frustrated because I started to feel that that's where the real stuff is. That's how you understand and how you truly connect is actually talking about things that make us vulnerable. So I had that in the back of my mind. And then I went through a a patch of failure in my own life where I found myself three weeks before my 39th birthday being dumped. (laughs) And I was just coming out of this long-term relationship, which ended really out of the blue as far as I was concerned. And it was the first relationship I got into after I'd got divorced. So my 30s were a really intense period of time where professionally I seemed quite successful because I had this job as a journalist and I started writing my books. But personally, it was a very different story where I got married to the wrong person. I got divorced. I went through unsuccessful fertility treatment. And then this new relationship had ended And I found myself staring down the barrel of my 40s and I felt so scared of what lay ahead because life had not turned out how I thought it would. And it was from that place that I started thinking more seriously about failure and what it teaches us because I realised that for every time I'd failed, I'd also survived. And it Mm. turned out that I also survived that breakup and Part of the reason I was able to survive it was because I started listening to a lot of podcasts because any pop music just made me feel like it had a direct resonance to my heartbreak. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? None of yours, It's like Frankie, you listen but... to sad music, don't you? When yeah. you're like, when you want to cry. I remember doing that as a teenager. It's like putting an album on that I knew was going to make me cry after a breakup. Cause you, I, I don't know. It's like self sabotage isn't it totally. like torturing yourself it's that thing of like feeling like you're in a kind of indie film staring out of a window yeah. being like this is the soundtrack <laughs> yeah. for this scene anyway all of those things came together and I was like how about I do an interview focused on failure and that's how it started and did you find people were quite actually open to that it's really changed as the podcast has matured. So in July, I'll be three years old. How to fail, I'll be three years old. And now the first <laughs> season, I did not know what I was doing. I am completely technologically incompetent. So I was like, I know I want to launch a podcast. I don't know how to do it. I like hand drew my own logo. I found an amazing sound engineer on Google, Chris, who's still with me. And he did all the technical side of things. But Because I was such an unknown quantity, I had to rely on kind of friends and contacts that I built up through my time in journalism to say yes. And I did struggle a little bit at that point, particularly with men. So I would get men saying, oh, I don't think I have failed, so I'm not sure I'm right for this. Whereas the women, all the women actually said to me, Oh, I failed so many times, I can't whittle it down Mm. to just three because I asked people to come up with three failures. And that was super interesting because actually when I interviewed those men, it turned out they had failed, but they just hadn't categorized it in that way. And I think that that taught me a really important lesson about privilege because if you are lucky enough to be a white male and you're born into this world, it's overwhelmingly made in your image. And so when you fail at something 
you think, well, that's just an obstacle to get over on my path to eventual success. Whereas if a woman experiences it or a marginalized person or someone of color or someone who lives with a chronic illness, they could be more likely to think, well, this defines me as a person. So that was the thing that I found in the first season. But as the podcast has grown, I now feel really lucky that a lot of people love the premise and really want to engage with it. And I think it's because of what you said earlier. Our world is so focused around stories of success. And sometimes people just want to actually tell the truth. And so that's massively changed as it's gone on, I have to say. like I've got amazing men who come on as guests now and who are completely willing to be vulnerable from the off. And do you think people just have different versions of what failure is? Because you you were saying you had a few failures before you had done yours, but you said that you then spoke about a breakup and struggling to get pregnant and things like that. Whereas I probably wouldn't have naturally put them under a category of failure. That's really interesting. And you're right. (laughs) People do evaluate failure so differently. And I think... One of my struggles, which is, it's ironic, I realise I'm going to sound stupid saying this because I'm on a podcast with Frankie Bridge and I have an amazing life. But one of my struggles has been Mm self-worth and believing in myself and having confidence in who I really am. And I think whenever I went through a breakup or whenever I had a round of IVF that failed, I felt that that was like, an appropriate verdict on who I was as a person. I was like, well, of course I failed at this because I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to be a mother or I'm I'm not good enough for someone to want to stay with me, which is a very sad thing to admit. And I've done a lot of work on myself, actually partly through the podcast, because it's kind of opened Mm. up this opportunity for me to be vulnerable too, and also for me to be authentic and to find that people respond to that. So I've done a lot of work on that over the last few years, but I think that's why... I categorize those things as failures. And also with the baby thing specifically, a lot of the language around fertility medicine is the language of failure, which I know you know from your sister. Mm. When I went through IVF, I was constantly told you're failing to respond to the drugs. You know, a friend of mine was told that she had an incompetent cervix or an inhospitable womb. That was another phrase. And I, I just don't think that you would apply that language to other medical conditions. And so a lot of the time it felt like, I was the one in the wrong and it was because of me that it wasn't working. And so that's why I categorise those things as failures. But you're right that other people have very different ideas of what failure is. And I often think it's super instructive when a guest comes on, not just how they talk about failure when we do the interview, but the things that they've chosen to talk about. So some people will choose a a failed driving test as one of their three failures and others will choose a decade lost to heroin addiction. I mean, those are two examples that I have genuinely had. And it's super interesting what people categorise as mistakes, what people categorise as having been something they survived and that ultimately ended up being instructive. And actually, when you get into it, you realise that this failed driving test actually represents something much deeper a lot of the time. It represents anxiety or it represents that idea of feeling like you could never be less than perfect. And so it always prompts an interesting discussion. And is that what you wanted out of the podcast? What were you hoping people would get from it when you started it? (sighs) 
That's such a good question. And you said at the outset that you were nervous about this interview and it's really good. I've never been asked that. Um, I think I wanted to do it to feel less alone and therefore I wanted other people to feel less alone too. I did it because I wanted us all to connect and to admit that the most important thing about being human is not pretending to be perfect all the time. It's actually being brave enough to share your wounds. And I've realized that that's the kind of act of generosity that people do, which leads to greater compassion and empathy. And it's a kind of virtuous circle. So I suppose I wanted people to feel less shame that their lives weren't necessarily like Kim Kardashian's on Instagram because Mm. social media is so wonderful in so many ways and it can also make people feel like failures on a daily basis because you're constantly comparing your insides. You know, you know your own neuroses, you know your own insecurities with everyone else's outsides. So you can't understand how Kim Kardashian is actually feeling inside her head when she posts that amazing picture of her in Costa Rica but you do know how you're feeling. And it was that kind of disconnect that I wanted to dismantle. I have to say, though, I had no ambition for it, really, beyond it existing. It was just an important thing for me to do. I just felt like I really wanted to do it. And to find it resonating in the way that the podcast has, has been honestly one of the greatest gifts of my life. It's been amazing and completely unanticipated. I suppose it came from a place of you were talking to these people, like you said, and you wanted to dig deeper into things and the people you're working for weren't interested in those parts. And this gave you the space to be able to do that. And then what came out of that was, oh, actually, other people want to know those things, too. And you talk about failure and what we learn from it and people feeling like they are able to fail and come out of that. But I feel like... Like you say, we all feel like through social media that we fail on a daily basis. But I also feel like the way things have gone with like this kind of cancel culture where people can't make mistakes and are made to feel that they can't come back from it. And I think that's a really scary thing to be putting out there. Like, you know, with my two boys and when you were younger, I'm sure you were taught you make a mistake, you either pay the consequences and you say sorry and you try and make things better or you learn from that and you move on. Whereas I feel like nowadays people aren't necessarily allowed to do that. It's like you make one mistake and you're done. Exactly. I I completely agree. It's at the same time as we're being encouraged to share so much more of ourselves online, we also live in a world where there's a vanishingly small space where we can make a mistake. Because if you send out an ill-thought tweet one day, you might go viral the next and lose everything, your job, everything, your platform. And so it feels like we don't have as much opportunity to try things out. And that for me is the biggest shame because for me, there's no failure really other than a failure to try. Because if you don't try, you can't learn. And if you don't try, you won't grow. (laughs) And I think you're right that we live in this age where... It feels like everyone is very angry about their own opinions. And if someone disagrees with them, they take it as not only a personal affront, but like a moral wrong and shut it down straight away. So there's no space for discussion. And it's 
really exhausting because the world is not binary. The world is lots of different colours all of the time. It's not just black and white. But I think we're going through a really gnarly transition at the moment where so many people are rightly enraged about social injustice and all the stuff that needs to be addressed. And the pendulum is swinging sort of too far one extreme and it needs to kind of come back to the middle and we all need to calm down and have a cup (laughs) of tea and realise that just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean that they're a bad or wrong person. Yeah, it's like we're trying to fight for two things. A lot of the time I feel like it's like everyone's fighting for the right, for freedom of speech and opinions and things like that. Like you say, we're encouraged to speak. And then on the other side, it's like if your opinion or what you say doesn't fit in with what everybody else thinks, then it's wrong. Yeah, I agree. I think we have to swing so far the other way for everyone to kind of learn and for it to be a conversation, everyone to talk about all these important things. And then hopefully at some point it will swing back to the middle and we'll have figured it all out and there'll be a... That's what right I think. <laughs> I'm optimistic about that. But I'm really interested because you, I know that you mentioned your two boys there. Raising mm. boys in the current climate I think poses a challenge. Like I speak to my best friend about this a lot because she's got a boy and a girl. And she told me the story about how Thomas went into the playground one day and there was a girl in his class who was running around being like, girls rule, boys are rubbish. And was like (laughs) wearing a girl power t-shirt. And I was like, wow, that's amazing that she had that kind of level of confidence and identity. But then Thomas came back feeling really sad and being like, why are boys rubbish? And it's a really difficult one to explain because they're not rubbish, obviously. No, I know. And a lot of conversations, and rightly so, are centred around protecting girls and women and young women. And, you know, with things that have happened recently, men and boys have become, a lot of the time, the villain Mm. in most situations. And I suppose it's time to address certain things and have conversations with boys and men. But then hopefully again, it will come into the middle. But I do, mine are so young, but I talk about a lot of this stuff on Loose Women. So with like schools, there's a lot of sexual assault for girls and, you know, they don't feel like they can talk about it. And straight away, it's like all comes down to the boys and the pressure that are on the girls. And of course, that is 100% there. But equally, I kind of feel like there's a pressure on men to be lads. Yeah. And to have that mentality as well. And not all boys are like that, you know. So it's as much as there's a pressure for girls that they feel like they have to be a certain way and to put out and not speak up if they feel like someone's done something or said something that they don't feel comfortable with. I think on the other end of the spectrum, boys are kind of taught they've got to be men. They don't have feelings. You know, there's still a lot of that where they feel like they can't really speak about you know, being sad or feeling worried and things like that. But equally, that laddie, oh, yeah, she's all right. Yeah, Yeah. I want to go and have sex or whatever. And most of them probably don't. Yeah. But they feel like they have to. So it's it's hard. Everyone's trapped, aren't they, by the the current system that you're like, you just, anyway, sorry, I slightly veered off territory there. (laughs) Asked you a really hard question. No, it's interesting. (laughs) No, because I always, we like I said, it's always those kind of subjects always come up on Loose Women. And obviously mine are so young, so it's hard for me to fully answer it and but I have my hopes for how I'll deal with it and the conversations I'll have with them as I get older and probably younger than what I want them to be but as a mum of two boys it is a hard one and I have those conversations with friends with girls and stuff and 
yeah both sides hard into also the i would say like just going back to what we were talking about before about anger and cancel culture i sometimes feel like well i don't have an opinion on that it feels yeah. like you're not allowed to say that you're not allowed to say i don't know and that has to change because you can't know everything about every single topic and have quote unquote the right viewpoint unless you go away and do some mm. research and talk to people and read some books <laughs> and yeah, so you because can't not have an all response. affect you personally yeah. and again I have that situation sometimes I come off air and I think oh god did I have the right thing to say because that subject hasn't ever affected me or I haven't experienced that so I can only comment it on it as someone from the outside but like you said all we can do is go away and learn and listen and talk and that's you know, like yeah. most things in the world at the minute, I suppose. As I said, I asked listeners to send in questions for you. And someone has asked, how do you deal with things when they're not perfect? I suppose that goes to the root of what life is, doesn't mm. it? I would describe myself as a recovering perfectionist. So I was someone who I did well at school and doing well at school became part of my identity, where I was like, if I don't ace this exam, then I was sort of scared of what would happen. Like, then, you know, my teachers won't like me, my parents won't love me, I'll be a failure. Like, that's that's how deep it went. And it made itself felt in my personal relationships as well. So when I got into a series of long-term relationships in my 20s, I would always strive to be the perfect girlfriend who had a job but would also do all the grocery shopping, do all the cooking, like never place any demands on my other half to the extent that when they said, what do you want to do today? I'd be like, I don't know. What do you want to do? Because I just wouldn't want to, I just, I'd lost sight of who I was and what I actually wanted. And that all imploded in spectacular fashion when I got divorced because when you get divorced, it's even if you're not high profile or well known, and I certainly wasn't and I'm not, even then it's really public because yeah. obviously all of your friendship group will know, your family will know. And it was like this crash course in having to admit that I was not perfect despite my best efforts. And it really, really helped me because what I realized was when I was busily trying to be perfect, I was also pretending and I wasn't fully being myself. So a lot of people who responded to that aspect of me weren't real friends. And they're the ones that fell by the wayside. My real friends, the ones who stood by me, had always known that I was imperfect. They'd always mm. seen that side of me, even though I tried hard to hide it. And actually, when the walls came crumbling down and I kind of lost that mask, it made it so much better. Like it made all of my relationships so much better and deeper because it felt like I was being real. And when you dismantle all of that, you then have time to think, well, what do I want? Like, who am I other than everyone else's projections of who they want me to be? Who am I? And it taught me that it's never too late to kind of change your life. And so when things don't go according to plan, when I do something imperfectly, I just think to myself, this is a gift. It's a lesson. It's teaching me something that I need to know. It's bringing me closer to who I really am because in my mind, there is no such thing as perfect or imperfect. There's no such thing as failure or mistakes because 
it's all about how you respond to them. So obviously there's like a factual element of like, if you fail an exam, that's a fact. (laughs) But feeling like a failure is a different thing. So you can attach a different emotion to it and you can think, okay, that really sucked. I'm really sad about that. I'm going to give myself some time to deal with whatever I've lost or failed at. And then I'm going to grow from it. And then I'm going to decide what I can learn from it. And it might be that what I learn from it is that subject isn't for me. Or it might be that what I learn from it is I need to work a bit harder. And I'm using it like a very kind of simplistic example. But I think that that kind of mindset can be applied to multiple different areas of life. So that's how I deal with imperfection. I realize that it just makes me more human. Mm. I've always been such a perfectionist. I think that's where most of my anxieties come from. So I need to be more Elizabeth Day. <laughs> I mean, you're so lovely to say that. I mean, the very idea that you would think that. But I I also think like you shouldn't beat yourself up about it. If you are a perfectionist, that's all you're trying to do is make things better for yourself and the world around you. Like what a beautiful characteristic. And mm. if you feel like you've done something wrong or someone's called you out on something, it takes emotional labor like I'm not impervious to that (laughs) but I've got better at realizing that if someone says something mean on Twitter and I know that I can metabolize it faster than I used to that used to set me out for weeks whereas now it will generally take me a few hours and what I always say to myself is like that person is bringing their emotional baggage and their emotional history and their perception to this interaction it's actually not about me it's about what they're bringing to it and that always helps and when you say after your divorce that you felt like then it was almost like this perfect you the walls came down and everyone kind of saw you for what you really were do you feel like in your relationship your partner at the time only ever really knew the perfect you I do feel that I mean I'm (laughs) I'm always wary talking about this because I realize that I'm only giving you one side of the story one side yeah yeah. I'm sure he'd be like of course she wasn't perfect no (laughs) but yeah but the real you do you feel like that you didn't really ever properly just relax and be just you you've nailed it I feel like I never Mm. relaxed I was always tense thinking what can I do better here that was the feeling And I think it's actually common to quite a lot of women and it's a scary place to be. It came from a place of fear and to explain that fear would take a whole other podcast. Mm. But yes, that is how I felt. And I always felt the fault was mine. I'm extremely conflict avoidant. Mm. And that combined with people pleasing and perfectionism is like a heady, toxic, emotional grenade to carry. And probably the fear of the end. And then that's, what happened anyway so then you kind of go look being perfect doesn't necessarily get you to where you want to be and actually things have worked out for the better clearly exactly so it's funny isn't it we have these ideas and actually and always when you're fearful of the worst thing happening and then the worst thing happens and you survive it you're like oh wow I'm so much stronger than I thought so Mm -hmm. that was one of the legacies of the divorce
Hi guys, summer's finally here and I'm looking forward to catching up with friends and family as much as possible. At all those get-togethers, I like to have the option of being able to moderate my alcohol intake without missing out on the occasion. That's when I love a refreshing Atopia and Tonic. It's an award-winning non-alcoholic spirit with all the flavour of a premium gin but less than 0.5% alcohol. Our friends at Atopia have given us an exclusive offer for Open Mind listeners. Just head over to clinkspirits.com and use the code OPENMIND at checkout to get £5 off a bottle of Atopia and free shipping. Enjoy the summer with a bit of mindful moderation. And you've spoken a lot because I've read some of your You Magazine articles and you talk a lot about your thoughts and feelings on a weekly basis. And you've spoken quite openly about your struggles to conceive and miscarriages and things like that. What, why did you feel like you wanted to talk about that? First of all, thank you for the work that you and your sister do in this area because I am so lucky I think to live in an age where discussions around this are changing Mm -hmm. the reason I wanted to talk openly about it was because I felt extremely alone when I was going through it for the first time so in 2014 I had two back-to-back rounds of IVF both unsuccessful and at the end of that year I got pregnant naturally and then I had a miscarriage at three months now as anyone who has gone through a similar experience will know that is a lot to take on. Um, Leaving aside the fact that just the hormones from having technically been pregnant three times in a year are completely crazy. And at that stage, there was vanishingly little out there where I could go, where I could see my experience reflected, and where I could seek some kind of explanation or answer. All I was getting was male consultants telling me things in clinical terms. And actually, I just wanted the kind of literary equivalent or podcast equivalent of a hug and someone saying, I see you. And I remember going to my local bookshop and there were walls and walls and walls of mother and baby books and what to expect when you're expecting and a week by week pregnancy. And there was nothing on fertility and infertility and miscarriage. I couldn't find anything. And when I launched How to Fail the podcast, it didn't come from, I wasn't thinking consciously, like I want to speak about miscarriage and fertility, but it just Mm. happened to come up in a series of conversations that I had with amazing guests. And then I wrote the book How to Fail a few months after the podcast had launched. And I knew when I wrote that book, that I wanted to have one chapter called How to Fail at Babies. And in that chapter, I wanted to be able to write everything that I would have liked to read. And the response to that chapter, it's the one that I get messaged about most still today. The response really was unbelievably heartwarming for me, but made me feel that it was worth carrying on doing because I am a bit of a weirdo in that I don't don't mind oversharing. I honestly, like when I talk about these things that have happened to me, it makes me feel like I'm in my most honest flow like it just feels right and I know that a a lot of women and men who've been through something like this don't feel like talking about it openly and I want to be there for them so that I can be their voice since that happened I've had you know I've met and married a completely wonderful man and um, we have had two miscarriages together and actually Mm. 
the experience of going through them together, I use that word very judiciously because it felt like before I felt very much on my own. This time I knew that there was this community of women that I'd discovered through writing and talking openly about my experiences and I could turn to them. And that's why I do it, because I think there's so much shame and stigma wrongly around these kind of conversations and we just but need why? to blow it wide open. I can, it's something I just can't understand. Why, like you said, you went in, you looked at all these books and they were all about being pregnant and babies and there was just nothing on fertility and miscarriage. And it, and it is still, even this whole, which I completely understand why some people want to not share their news before three months and things like that. But it's also, I think, makes people feel more alone and like Mm. if their miscarriage happens in that time that it's almost expected it's normal you shouldn't really have any feelings about that yes and I I just wonder where you think all that comes where does this shame come from I think it comes from multiple different places but I think the main thing is is that women for millennia have been taught subconsciously that their experiences are less valid than men's and What that has meant is that therefore they feel they can't talk about things that are specifically female because, as you say, for so long, miscarriage, particularly early miscarriage, has been deemed, and I use quote marks here, just one of those things. That's partly because it hasn't been investigated medically or scientifically in the same way that conditions affecting both genders or indeed only men would have been, in my opinion. (laughs) Again, that's changing. I was literally having this conversation (laughs) with someone yesterday and what was it we were talking about? I can't remember what medication it was we were talking about. And I said, isn't it? It's something for women. Mm. I said, I just don't understand. Oh, we were talking about ironically, hyperemis in pregnancy where you can't stop, I had that, where you can't stop being sick and morning sickness. I know they have had things, but hyperemis especially is not really looked into that much. It's debilitating and it's horrendous, yet no one really knows much about it and it's kind of left to the wayside. The same with HRT, the same with you know, even periods. Totally. You know, and my friend said to me, well, it's because it's a woman problem, not a man problem. And I said, well, yeah, they managed to get Viagra sorted pretty easily, yes. didn't they? <laughs> I know. It's so true. It's so true. That's hilarious. I'm like, uh, it, it, it's exactly that. And, and again, because women are bloody amazing and strong and they can bear a lot of stuff. They've got, I'm talking in very general terms here, but most of the women I know are incredibly strong, have really high pain thresholds and just like get on with things. And because there is no medical apparatus where, I mean, again, this is changing a lot because these conversations have become more open. But, you know, a friend of mine had endometriosis severely for 20 years before a female GP said, have you thought of it might be this? And then Mm. she was able to be treated appropriately. But the fact that no one had thought to mention that to her before then, that's something that really needs to change. So I think that's why the conversation has been silent, is that women internalise a lot of that and see it as their own failure and their own shame, which is so, so wrong. Do you think some of that comes from once you're of a certain age, it's kind of one of those things where people start saying to you, 
Oh, are you going to have kids? Especially if you've got a partner. Are you going to have kids? Oh, do you not want kids? And that whole kind of like social pressure to that assumption that mm. you want them. Yes. And if you don't have them, what are you doing? You're less than, you're childless yeah. is obviously the term. Yeah. I think there are some incredible women out there, many of whom are friends of mine who have never wanted children or are comfortable with a child-free future because it does afford a lot of opportunities. I cannot tell you, Frankie, how much I wish I was one of those women. (laughs) I wish I was, but I'm not. I really, really want to be a mother and I will get there. This is my message to the universe. Um, But you're right that there's so much social conditioning that when I was in my early 30s and I just got married for the first time, I sound like Joan Collins. (laughs) It's so hilarious. (laughs) um, You've only had two marriages. I know, I have. I know, I'm like, oh, my first husband. Anyway, when I got married, I remember a friend's mother discovering that I was going through IVF saying, oh, I just thought that you were really focused on your career and you didn't want children. There's that kind of assumption. And then there's also people asking constantly, do you have children without understanding the weight that that question can carry for certain Mm. people? Now, it's always very tricky this because it's also just like a nice conversational question to ask. And I actually don't think the responsibility should always be with the questioner. I think sometimes the responsibility for how you receive it has to be with the person being asked the question. And I've got good at saying, no, I don't, but I'm sad about that. Or no, I don't, not yet. Or no, but just having a kind of kernel of explanation in that, that makes it clear that that question is a really, really heavy one for some people. Yeah, it's one I always, I think sometimes we do just try and make conversation like when I have my first or when are you going to have your second and, or, you know, just even questions when you're pregnant that people ask and you think, why would you ask that? But I do think often it just comes from a place of easy conversation. But I think we're all trying to be more aware, especially myself of, like you say, of going through my sister's fertility struggles with her. I learned so much from her of what were kind of potentially not the right things to say, Mm. you know, simple things like she could get pregnant, but then she would lose them and people would say, oh, well, at least you can get pregnant, which in your head is makes sense. You know, that is a nice thing to say. But actually for her, she was like, what's the point of me getting pregnant if I don't stay pregnant? Yeah. And there's just, you know, again, if you haven't experienced it, I suppose you just don't really know. But you also wrote about the many different names that you would come under for so many different children yes. in your life because you have godchildren yeah you have I know you've got stepchildren yeah I've got 10 godchildren which is like such a that's ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> you say gift I say ridiculous <laughs> it's a gift which requires a lot of gift giving yeah. <laughs> it has to be quite organized around Christmas and I've got I'm lucky enough to have three stepchildren and because I am now 42, most of my friends have children as well. So I spend a lot of time with other people's children, which can be wonderful. And actually with all of my closest friends and my other half, it is wonderful because they understand me so well. And they also Mm. understand that I need adult only kind of connection time because you don't always want to hang out with other people's children because sometimes however lovely those children are, it's painful (laughs) to just constantly see what you don't have and what you long for. And also, frankly, some children aren't that great. (laughs) 
and, um, and apparently, I have my own and I don't like a lot of yeah. others. So, <laughs> Well, you know, I love it when parents say that to me because it makes me feel so much better because I worried for ages, like maybe I'm not maternal enough because I don't no. just wholesale love all children. But I, yeah, I love it when parents are like, no, you love, love your own. Okay. Adults. Exactly. So why should we love all children? Exactly. <laughs> like I look back and I used to want to be an English teacher or I used to want to run my own like dance school. And now I'm like, I couldn't think of anything worse because I would have to deal with children day in and day out. <laughs> I love hearing that so much. Thank you. But I was like, um, yeah, well, we, I was just thinking about how we have names. We have names for so many roles in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a mother, but I am this other person to all of these children. So I've got two nieces. So I'm I'm their aunt and that's great. That's a good label. And I'm a godmother, which is a good label. But I wanted something just that was all expansive that Mm -hmm. kind of could identify those amazing women. And I think so many of us have them in our lives who haven't made conventional choices, who don't have children of their own, but who bring this energy and generosity of spirit into their lives and some people got in touch and they were like there are some incredible words in like Swahili where the culture is so much more family orientated that it's completely natural to have these kind of words the closest I could get to was like auntie which I think is just as a wholesale thing not just for your actual blood relatives and I I like that but it's still not quite it so any if I think in some other countries auntie is quite a general yeah name for women who aren't family but a close family but then I feel like that takes away from the fact that you are an aunt to yours yeah yeah so it's it's a hard one but I get what you mean because I have women in my life that are more to me than you know they're not quite my mum they're not a family member but they're really important women in my life that have helped shaped I feel who I am or, or are people that I can have certain conversations with that I can't have with others or with my parents and I would love to have a name for them but you're right I wouldn't know what that would be no answers on a postcard showing my age not on a postcard just like email (laughs) not on a postcard (laughs) email I'd say even just Instagram maybe or something just a DM just in the comments (laughs) (laughs) just a DM Um, you said earlier that you are quite recently married congratulations thank you and Someone sent in a question, which I thought was quite interesting, because when I got married, I got quite a lot of stick for this. And they said, as a newly married woman, how do you feel about changing your name? Have you changed your name? I haven't changed my name. And I have no judgment of people who change their names at all. The reason I didn't change my name was because I did the first time round, and I really regretted it because that ended in divorce, but also because I have a professional existence that revolves around my name being in print. So Mm -hmm. my surname is part of that. And that was really important to me personally to keep because my name is on my books and stuff like that. So I didn't want to change it for that reason. And also because I just happen to like my surname. I'm one of two girls. And if I don't keep it, then it will just completely like fall out because my sister's got married and she has changed her name. And my other half, he has an ex-wife who is the mother of his children and they have his surname. And I want to be respectful of that. 
And so for all of those reasons, I just didn't feel it was necessary. And I think everyone should be empowered to make the choice that suits them. And for some people, it's a really lovely gesture or they prefer the surname and it just feels right. And it means that there's not going to be an issue at passport control when you're going through with your children. And then for others, it means something different or they want to make some kind of feminist statement and to each their own. And I just happen to really like my surname. So I decided to keep it. <laughs> well, I changed mine. I was I was only 24 when I got married and I didn't even really think about it. It just wasn't yeah. a thought that I really thought of. And now when I look back, like work-wise, I wish I'd have kept it the same because it would have been easy. You know, like if you go on Google, where I started so young, it, it changes. Yeah. It's, it's, no, it's not fluid. Other than that, I'm not really fussed, I suppose, because of the boys. But I got so much crap for it online for changing it. And and it wasn't something that, I, like I said, I hadn't given much thought about. And then it made me really start to think. And I was like, God. Whereas I think now it's more common to not change it so much. And people do think about it a bit more. But yeah, I like what you said, of, you know, your husband's kids and they have the same name and... That's really nice, I suppose. But yeah, yeah, each to their own, like you say. I have a best friend that took on the surname Vile and I feel like that's a real commitment. Wow, (laughs) she must really love him. She must really love him, I know. Because I struggle, when when we were having kids, I was always like, Bridge seems like a really easy surname to think of names to go with. But it's very easy to make a name sound like a place with the name Bridge. Very easy. And I was like, you know, always really struggled with that. And then she had Vile and in, in the end she was like no now no name sounds good to file so we just have to just go with it <laughs> so you know sometimes I feel like there's reasons why people don't take I also think that there because we do live in an age of much greater equality I mean we're not perfect yet by any means but I think that there are some women who feel so empowered in their own selves and know exactly who they are that they sort of take that other half's surnames as like throwing them a bone like okay Mm. I'll do this in a kind of semi-ironic way and it's quite nice in the same way that we might like share an address so I think there are like multiple different ways that you can approach it it's a really interesting question actually Mm. yeah my dad was because he's got two girls was really desperate for me to keep my name and then he was like maybe you should double barrel it and then we realized that my major name is Sandford and then I'd be Sandford Bridge which just sounds like Stamford Bridge yes. and Wayne played for oh. Chelsea so it just was a mess from the beginning so it was just a lot easier to just go in and go full hog <laughs> so final questions when I get to the end of the podcast I like people to kind of sum up with some tips of what they'd give to any listeners and you know failure is something that's tough for people to deal with and something that we can all learn from like you say so what would be your like three best bits of advice for people to be able to look at failure in a positive way sure okay so number one treat failure as data acquisition so every time you fail at something understand that that is giving you valuable information about how to do something differently next time a scientist working on a cure for a disease or a vaccine for a pandemic for instance mm-hmm. would not think that they were a failure just because an experiment 
or a piece of research hadn't worked, they would think, oh, that's given me really instructive information about what doesn't work. So I can eliminate that from the inquiry and get closer to the thing that does work. And I think, yeah, you can apply that in multiple different areas of life. Like online dating, I met my husband through Hinge. So I've been there, the wilderness of online dating in your late thirties. And every time you have an unsuccessful date or someone doesn't return your WhatsApp message, you could think to yourself, well, thank you, wrong person for eliminating yourself from my inquiries, because that will bring me closer to the person who I know is right for me. Mm -hmm. And I think if you approach failure that way, it kind of takes the sting out of the tail. The second thing I would say is that you are not your worst thoughts. You exist separately from your anxious brain. So Sometimes your brain will be unspooling with all sorts of anxious thoughts and will be telling you there are all sorts of things to be fearful of and worried about. And actually, you exist separately from that. (laughs) So that's sort of the art of meditation, really, is kind of observing the thoughts without feeling defined by them. And generally speaking, unless you suffer from a neurological condition, your brain will do what you tell it to in the same way that if you tell yourself to raise your right arm, you can. You can have a conversation with your brain and say to it, I appreciate your feedback, but I'm kind of okay. (laughs) I'm not sure that what you're saying, brain, is fully accurate. And when you start having those kind of conversations and you start really analysing what your internal narrative is it makes you realize that you don't have to respond to every single negative thought you're having. You are so much more than your worst days. So that's another Mm. thing I would say. And then the final thing I would say is that it is in being open about your vulnerabilities that you paradoxically find the source of your greatest strength. And what I mean by that is that when I started being open about the things that went wrong in my life and when I asked other people to do that with me, I felt not only the most authentic version of myself, but I was the version of myself that more and more people responded to in a more genuine way. So it actually ended up being a version of success. Like how to fail is ironically the most successful thing I've ever done. And I think that's because it comes from that place of total authenticity When you seek to be open about your vulnerability, it's an act of generosity that enables someone else to connect with you on a really real human level. And that puts more compassion and empathy and kindness into the world. And it's a wonderful thing to do. So those are my three top tips. Thank you. I think they're perfect. And I've loved talking to you. I could literally sit and talk to you all day and ask your opinion on everything. You just have the best way of wording things and making the world make sense so thank you oh it has been such a joy frankie thank you for being just a brilliant person a brilliant interviewer and i've loved it thanks so much for listening to this episode of open mind i hope this has been really helpful to you if you have been affected by this episode or would like to find out any more information regarding mental health then please head over to mind.org.uk And please don't forget to follow me on Instagram to look out for my stories where I'll reveal each new guest and collect all of your fantastic questions that I'll get to ask them. Speak soon. Are you planning a party, a barbecue 
or even a garden soiree this summer? Now we're getting used to hosting again, we have to cater to all the needs of our guests. Lots of my friends and family don't like to drink too much alcohol, but love the taste and the celebration, and there's no reason why they should lose out. I always make sure to have a bottle of Atopia on hand so I can rustle up a quick Atopia and tonic for the designated drivers, expectant mothers, or those who just want to take a night off. And it even goes down well with the big drinkers too. I believe moderation shouldn't come with a compromise. To get started on your cocktail journey, head over to Atopia Spirits to get inspired.